Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. (sighs) Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? We make getting custom window treatments a minor project with major impact. Choose from premium blinds, shades, and shutters. We even have options for your patio, too. Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Our design experts can help you find the perfect window treatments on your schedule. We'll even send free samples directly to you. Plus, we can handle the measuring and installation for you. Unlimited window treatments installed for just one low cost. And with Blinds.com, you'll always get transparent pricing. No hidden fees. Our free shipping and 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step. And into your home, too. Shop Blinds.com right now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off for a limited time at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Welcome to the WBBM In-Depth Podcast. I'm Rob Hart. William Hazelgrove is a historian and author of the new book, 160 Minutes, The Race to Save RMS Titanic. The world of 1912 was one of astonishing progress. Up until the early 19th century, human transportation and communication had been the same for hundreds, if not thousands of years. Communication was talking and writing. If you wanted to go somewhere over land, you needed a horse. If you wanted to go across the water, you had no choice but to sail across the sea. Then everything changed with astonishing speed. Steam locomotives could harness the power of hundreds of horses to pull trains across continents. Wooden sailing ships gave way to steamships made of iron. And thanks to wireless radio, ocean-going vessels always had a connection to shore. The Titanic was just the latest and greatest example of that march of technology an industrial marvel that would move over 2,000 people in comfort that was unimaginable just decades before. Now it's time for a little confession. I've always been interested in the story of the Titanic, and I can trace that back to 1985 when Dr. Robert Ballard found the shipwreck. My first question for William Hazelgrove is, what brought you into the story of the Titanic? You know, I think like a lot of people, I too have been fascinated with the story. Big... Big movie fan, love the movie. Um, and uh, I think because it's a microcosm of its time, uh, where you had the, the wealthiest people, the poorest people, the most magnificent ship, the largest ship, the unthinkable ship, at a time when um, the Gilded Age was ending, sort of the dreamy age in the 20th century was just on the horizon, just getting going. And so the ship sinks and in it, in its sinking, we see sort of the dissection of, of society. We see humans at their best, at their worst. And, uh, and we see the hubris of, of man really uh, saying, you know, we can create an unsinkable ship. Uh, we, we, we can conquer the physical world. And, and the truth was uh, they couldn't. And the the fascinating thing about this particular book is that it explores an aspect of the shipwreck that is both 
um, synonymous with it, but at the same time, uh, not particularly well known. And that is the aspect of what uh, wireless and eventually radio played in not only the rescue attempts to uh, get to the Titanic before it sank and then uh, rescue the survivors from the water, but also the fact that this was probably the first news event or disaster to unfold in real time in a way that the rest of the world could follow along because of those uh, dispatches from the uh, wireless shack of the Titanic. And it's a very powerful, uh, for its day, uh, 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 radio signal. Yeah, uh, essentially wireless. And, you know, back to your your first question, this is sort of what got me interested in this book and writing this book was the wireless technology, uh, sort of like the personal computer of the 80s uh, when, you know, people didn't understand it. Uh, they didn't understand the internet. Uh, mostly computer nerds uh, were into it. Well, this was wireless in 1912. Uh, you had two young 20-somethings, Jack Phillips, Harold Bride. Uh, they didn't work for White Star. They worked for Marconi. Uh, they understood Morse. Nobody else did. And, and most of the captains, including Captain Smith, regarded it as a gadget, something for the first-class passengers to send a message to New York and go, Hey, look, I'm I'm in the middle of the ocean. And, and in fact, Titanic had the most powerful wireless set uh, it, during the day. It could send a, a message 500 miles at night, though, because of the ionosphere, it could bounce 2000 miles all the way into Manhattan. So so this new technology uh, did several things. One, it took away the supremacy of the captain Two, it connected a ship to the rest of the world. So, so with Titanic. When she started to sink, uh, when Captain Smith went down to the wireless room, uh, you know, minutes after it hit the iceberg and said, send CQD, which is come quick distress, suddenly Titanic, as you said, was unfolding in real time. And these signals are, are going up, these Hertzian signals are bouncing all over the place. And it's a little bit like the early days of the telephone where everybody was on the same circuit, same frequency. So, so you had to wait for somebody to get off so you could get on. Well, that, that was wireless. So wireless was, you know, everybody could listen in. Uh, you hoped the right person was getting the signal. Um, you know, it, it's very interesting because, you know, let's take social media. Social media is based on sharing. So what is sharing? Well, you take something, uh, a post, if you will, you take it and then you spread it out to your friends. So you're actually taking the equivalent of the wireless signal of 1912 that a shore station, say in Newfoundland, would get, and then they'd lob it on and share it with somebody else. So, so it's fascinating because it's it's the infancy of this of this technology, but it, again, it's much like the early days of the internet and the personal computer. In your book and in other books about uh, Jack Phillips and Harold Bride, I mean, first, I do establish that Jack Phillips, even though he was the senior wireless operator on the Titanic, he was only 25. And uh, Harold Bride, Bride, I believe, was like 21 or 22. And as you mentioned in the book, he looked like a child being carried off the Carpathia when they arrived in New York. And uh, Marconi uh, ferried him off to talk to the New York Times. He looked like a very young man. And I always get the impression that these were these were not just you know they, they were the IT guys they were high strung uh, they had a, a a very strict notion of what the rules and etiquette should be uh, one of the famous stories that you talk about in your book and elsewhere in Titanic lore is uh, shortly before the iceberg collision 
um, when the wireless operator on the Californian, which was only 10 miles away, uh, breaks in. He doesn't use the proper Marconi protocol. And as in the early days of Internet chat rooms, uh, um, Jack Phillips chastises uh, Cyril Evans on the Californian for not using proper netiquette and just tells him to shut up and leave him alone. Yeah, yeah. He's like, shut up. Shut up. You're jamming me, which, right, it's not etiquette. Um, and this is because, uh, you know, this is AC uh, uh, or rather this was DC, direct current. So the more powerful you're set, the closer you are to a, a ship, you would literally blow the ears off that operator. Well, all right. So now for the listeners, the California is only 10 miles away. Captain Lord has stopped his ship because he doesn't want to go into the ice field that Titanic has stumbled into. Um, his Marconi operator, again, tries to break in on Jack Phillips to say, hey, I've got some ice warnings for you. Phillips chastises him. And then this operator on the California goes to bed. So essentially, the ears on California are off, but, but she's only 10 miles away. And while the officers on the bridge are saying, you know, I see this ship. This looks very strange in the water, this brilliantly lit ship. Captain Lord is saying, no, 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 that's not the Titanic. You know, that, that's not, not it. But at the same time, and this is, this is what um, people find incredible, uh, Captain Smith and others are putting people into lifeboats, and they're saying, see that light? See that light? That's a ship. Row toward that light. Row toward that light. And that's not just in a few accounts. That's in Jack Thayer's account, the 17-year-old who was on, on Titanic. It's in many uh, interviews. It's in the officers' accounts. This light was bright enough where the officers and Captain Smith were saying, row toward that light. It's funny you bring up Jack Thayer, who was 17 years old, and he was the son of, I believe, the president of the Pennsylvania Railroad. And so from this well-heeled uh, Philadelphia family coming back to America from a European trip, and uh, you talk about um, entries into the Titanic story. Um, when I was in grade school, you'd have those scholastic book fairs and these right. these uh, stories about the Titanic that are geared for children. And as a, a in a way of making the story more accessible to somebody who is in second grade or third grade or fifth grade was telling the story of the Titanic through uh, Jack Thayer's eyes because he was this young man who was experiencing the sinking. And he was one of the very few uh, who managed who managed to survive falling into that freezing water as the ship was sinking. And one of the very few people who can owe his life to the existence of Marconi and his radio, because that was the only way any rescue ship could arrive. And that was the difference between life or death for some of the people like Jack Thayer, who were freezing in the water and then freezing out of the water for several hours after the Titanic sank. Yeah, Jack Thayer's a great character because he... He was there. He's young. He's walking around the ship right before the collision with the iceberg. And, you know, he had a really interesting perspective because he wrote in 1940 of his account. He said, you know, before Titanic hit that iceberg, uh, life had a symmetry to it. Um, newspaper headlines were all about the same size. There was no great events happening. The airplane hadn't become this instrument of death. Few people had cars. Um, and, and he said there was a sort of Grecian symmetry to life. He said, after that, the carnage of the 20th century moved in. And he said, and I tie all this to April 12 or 
April 12th, 1912, uh, April 14th, 1912, when Titanic hit that iceberg. So you have this, this, this 17 year old who is literally stuck on the ship, by the way. Um, he's separated from his parents. His mother has gone to get into a ship, uh, a lifeboat. His father, he gets separated from. And you know, in his account, it's very eerie because he says, suddenly father and I were separated you know, because people were, you know, again, I, I go after this in my book, I sort of break up the mythology of Titanic, that it was a very orderly uh, transition for people into the boats and everything. It wasn't, it was chaos. And so suddenly Thayer is separated from his father and he says, uh, I, I was separated from father. And then he has a line, that was the last I ever saw of him. And this is what was happening was basically for eternity, people were being separated the way you'd walk out a door. And so now Thayer and his friend are walking around Titanic, trying to figure out the best way to get off the ship as it's sinking and calculating their, their odds of survival. Um, you know, in this water, which, which you, you bring up, which is only 20 degrees. And of course, the people who went into it and survived said it was like a thousand knives hitting your body. And, and people didn't drown after Titanic. They froze to death. You know, we always hear the 1,500 people that went into the water, they did not, you know, all collectively drown. They froze to death very quickly. That is the one thing. I mean, James Cameron's movie, which, of course, is now a, a multi-billion dollar enterprise, uh, thanks to people uh, falling in love with the, the love story between two fictional characters. But Cameron was a it was and is a uh, devotee of the Titanic story and strove for accuracy. And that scene at the very end where uh, Fifth Officer Lowe is in the lifeboat going through the field of bodies looking for people accurately depicts the horror of that scene, which was not really shown in other Titanic movies, either because of, of budgetary restrictions or uh, you know, the morals of the time. But that really does show in a very direct way the fact that the thousands of people uh, not only froze to death in the water, but then just were just carried off to sea. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, the, the real tragedy of this, uh, as you know, is, all right, so these people are in the water and the testimonials to what it sounded like go from locusts on a summer night to when a ball game, in a ball game when a ball is hit and the crowd cheers to a long wailing death moan all in the same pitch. So the 700 people, mostly first class, sitting in the lifeboats, the 20 lifeboats, are surrounding these 1,500 people, mostly third class, that are in the water. So people talk about going back, but they're quickly shouted down with, we'll get swamped. Now these boats were very heavy duty, and the great tragedy is they were half loaded. You had uh, capacity of 75 people in each boat, many had 10, 15, 20, and a lot of different reasons for that. But the truth is, as you say, only one went back, only one boat went back, finally. And mostly it was too late. I think they picked up two, three, four people. Uh, everybody else had died. So, so the, the dirty secret of Titanic is that they didn't go back and help these people when in fact they had room for say 300 to 400 more people. And these were very substantial boats. They were high in the water, heavily reinforced, the whole argument, oh, we'll get swamped. It, it doesn't hold water. If that was the case, you could go to the edge of these people. But the truth is, this was not a great moment for 
for humans uh, in terms of doing the right thing. One person and and one particular crew uh, uh, rose above all of that, and that was uh, Captain Arthur Rostron of the uh, Carpathia and uh, uh, their wireless operator, Harold Cottam. Uh, not only do they uh, turn around and uh, make the best possible speed for the uh, Titanic's last reported position, but uh, you know they they put themselves in the same danger that the uh, Titanic uh, put itself in by speeding into this ice field. Yeah, uh, Captain Rostrum's everything we want to be, um, as opposed to say Captain Moore and Captain Lord, who did not go into the ice field. Um, so Rostrum is known as the Electric Spark because he has all this energy energy. He's a compact man. He's a religious man. He gets the CQD come quick distress. He's 50 miles away. He turns his ship around immediately, diverts all the steam. Okay. So these are big steam driven engines from the passengers, all the hot water from the passengers into those engines. And he makes that ship go much faster than it was ever designed for. He sets up a triage he sets up a, a basically a makeshift hospital in the cafeteria. He posts five different lookouts. He uncovers all the lifeboats. He gets all this food and medicine ready. He goes into an emergency footing right away, says a quick prayer. And as you said, he starts then zigzagging through the North Atlantic in the middle of the night, uh, going around the very icebergs that took down Titanic, not giving a thought to his own personal safety, but going, you know, held a leather to go get to Titanic because he realized, and, and, and for the listeners, the book is called 160 Minutes because that's how long they have. When Titanic hits the iceberg to when it sinks, it has two hours and 40 minutes to live. And so that's the race that was on. And that was the discovery I made when I started researching the book and, and sort of said, wow, this hasn't been covered, that there was a big rescue operation involving 10 ships all turning around and going toward Titanic. Now, obviously Carpathia, is with with uh, Captain Rostrum is the only one that makes it with any degree of, of being on you know close to that mark when she sank. Now Titanic sleeps uh, rather sinks at two twenty a.m. Rostrum gets there about an hour ten minutes later, and he gets to that spot and it's just dark and he's like I'm too late I'm too late and then he sees a small green flare it's it's a lifeboat with one of the officers in there with a flare gun and then he suddenly in the darkness he sees the 20 lifeboats scattered around and he starts picking up these people and as you said earlier if it wasn't for wireless if it wasn't for wireless the 700 and some odd people who were rescued by rostrum would a never been rescued and b we would have never known what happened to titanic if in fact their wireless set hadn't worked if the if the wireless officers had not been on board, Titanic would have just sunk. And to this day, it would have been the great mystery of what happened to Titanic. Which, which, speaking of the wireless not working, was a distinct possibility because going back to Jack Phillips and Harold Bride, our high-strung IT guys in the office, um, they had spent all of Sunday, the 14th, repairing the wireless set and breaking company rules at the same time. Because at that moment, if you had a wireless problem, uh, the rules said go to port and then the qualified company tech uh, will fix the wireless set. But uh, they, they took matters into their own hands and saved hundreds of people as a result. Now, you bring up a great point, and that is a very little known point about Titanic, that they had this short in, in their set that, that was crippling the transmissions. So it's just serendipitous that they happened 
you know, literally hours before to get that set up and working again, before the greatest tragedy, maritime tragedy up to that time. Um, now, wireless is, was a strange uh, technology that had come out to a lot of young people at the same time, uh, you know, older people are like, I don't get this gadget, right? So, so there's a station at Newfoundland called Cape Race. There's a 14 year old boy there named Jimmy Merrick. The two adults leave the station to work on the diesel engine outside. Merrick's sitting there by himself. He all of a sudden hears these signals. He deciphers them. It's the Titanic saying, come quick, distress, have hit an iceberg sinking. Uh, he runs and tells the adults. They confirm it. And they tell him, don't say anything to anybody that you were the first one to hear this because we'll lose our jobs. And he keeps his mouth shut for 50 years. And, and you know, there's two, so just to give an idea of how far these signals bounce, there's boys in New Jersey, four of them. They're in a kitchen. The parents are asleep. They've got an antenna strung on the roof. They're huddled around a set trying to see what they can pick up. And, you know, it's, it's, it's fun. It's a hobby. And suddenly they pick up these signals and they decipher them. And it's the Titanic saying we're sinking and struck an iceberg. Uh, they run and tell their parents. The parents don't believe them. They say that's ridiculous. That's not Titanic. Besides, it's unsinkable. But this is to show you how serendipitous this technology was, how some people understood it, a lot of people didn't, uh, a bunch of young people have it or just playing around like a hobby. So 14 year olds, small boys are getting these signals first. That's that is one of the aspects of the story that uh, this book uncovers, because anybody who's a Titanic buff knows that uh, Jack Phillips was communicating with the Marconi station at Cape Race, Newfoundland. Uh, he was very angry at the Californian for breaking into his conversation. He was sending along all these shipboard messages to Newfoundland. I did not know <laughs> that the person at Cape Race was 14 years old uh, as this thing was unfolding, which once again goes to show you uh, that, as you said accurately, this was, this was a young person's game. Yeah, I mean, or, or the strange story of David Sarnoff, who became a media mogul. He's sitting in, in Manhattan on top of Wanamaker's department store in a small wireless room. Why? Because Mr. Wanamaker thought it'd be a really cool thing for his customers to be able to send a wireless message. Well, you know, he's bored. He's falling asleep. You know, there's no traffic. Suddenly, his headset goes off. He deciphers the message. It's Titanic. We're sinking CQD. Come quick, distress. He runs and tells a little rag on a newspaper called the New York Times that gets the scoop of the century. Uh, two two elements on this. One, David Sarnoff eventually goes on to become the uh, uh, founder of RCA and the president of NBC. So he is a, a major figure in uh, network television and radio. And the New York Times, how they were able to both uh, scoop the competition uh, with the sinking and arrange Harold Bride's exclusive via the Marconi Company are just fascinating and also extremely relatable stories in the 21st century. The, the New York Times broke the story of the Titanic sinking more or less on a hunch. Yeah, um, exactly. The editor, all the other newspapers were saying, oh, Titanic was uh, towed to Newfoundland. They even chartered a train to take the passengers, or rather the relatives of the survivors there, and, and everybody's safe. New York Times went the other way and said, he, 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 he took a, a shot. He said, I'm either going to lose my job or we're going to be the number one paper. And he said, no, it sank with tremendous loss of life. So, so the Times is, is grabbing this story at a, a, you know, and really going on a limb when all the other newspapers are sort of putting out these half-truths, you know, like Captain Smith, he, he went down 
saving babies and saying be British and all this stuff, which is just simply not true. Um, and, and, you know, going back to Harold Bride, um, you know, my, I opened the book with it, as you know, with his first chapter where Marconi tells Harold Bride on the Carpathian, don't talk to anybody. Don't talk to anybody. Um, I've arranged for you to talk to the New York Times and you'll get a thousand dollars, which was an immense amount of money. So as Carpathia is coming back, Harold Bride isn't really communicating with a lot of people, including the president. And when they hit um, you know, the harbor in New York, newsmen have chartered launches and they're literally throwing money onto, the, onto Carpathia saying to the survivors, jump overboard, we'll pick you up and we'll get your story and we'll pay you. And it was just crazy, it was pandemonium. And, and so finally, when they do reach the dock, Guglio Marconi rushes onto the ship, goes right to the wireless room, says, you know, to Harold Phillips or, or Harold Bride, you're done. Your, your, your job is finished because Harold had to take over the, the wireless because the other wireless operator collapsed from exhaustion um, with his frozen feet. His feet are frozen. And he's and Marconi takes him off the ship. And there's a famous photo of, of Harold Bride being taken off with these feet, just, you know, enmeshed in these big cotton uh, gauze. And he rushes him off to a hotel where he sits down with New York Times reporters and tells the real story of what happened to Titanic, which of course the New York Times runs and gets the scoop of the century. And and, and some of these uh, erroneous newspaper headlines, it, 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 your ability as a journalist on land in 1912 to tell the story properly really hinges upon your reporters or someone's ability to decipher wireless and know who is talking to whom, because there was so much traffic on the North Atlantic after the Titanic sank, it was very easy to um, misinterpret a garbled message as the Titanic was safe. It was being towed to Halifax. Uh, the SS Virginian had the Titanic under tow, and it really took the New York Times uh, communicating with their correspondent in Montreal who said, we haven't heard from Titanic in three hours. And that was kind of the assumption that it went down. That's right. Um, and, the, and the Times was actually the most accurate when they put out Walt uh, or Harold Bride's story because most of the reporting was erroneous. And as he said, uh, they, they were making, making a lot of this up. Now, the mythology of Titanic really begins there too because believe it or not, this was a tragedy that had no, no peril. Uh, parallel because at this time you know, you didn't have the mega death we have in the 20th century so they had to frame it in this sort of Christian Judeo-Christian sort of framework of a great heroism a great Greek tragedy um, and this is why we had a lot of the mythology that grew up around Titanic and, and which kind of would sandwich down the the real story and then of course Walter Lord a copywriter in the 1950s decided to start interviewing the survivors and he does, and Titanic had sort of fallen down in terms of the, the public's fascination with it up to now. So he publishes a little book called A Night to Remember in about 1957 or so. And it's only 112 pages, but it's a, you are there with the survivors and it's a, this sort of voyeuristic journey you take. And so this sort of created the floor for every Titanic book that follows. So every Titanic book follows, there's a lot of Walter Lord's book in there. It's not that he's wrong. It's where he decided to put his camera. It was the, the view he took. And so we, didn't, we don't get a lot of deviation. One thing I wanted to do, and I do with all my books, is I wanted to get into the mythology of Titanic to say, in common sense terms, what really happened? 
Could everybody have been saved? Yes, they could. Uh, and was this a night of human failing? Yes, it was. And then uh, uh, what, what, what's remarkable about that, though, is that without Walter Lord's interest in this story and his ability to reach out to survivors, you probably wouldn't have had those uh, primary sources and first-person accounts at all, even even if those first-person accounts are um, after 40 years of massaging the story or uh, you know, remembering certain things or, or, or pushing certain details together. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's a great service. I mean, I used his book. Everybody uses it. And again, you know, it's not where it's not what he was getting was erroneous. It's just more that this was the view he decided to take, I, you know, sort of unquestioning, let's go. Um, and again, you know, in my research, I found that 12 people have been shot on Titanic. Um, and we found this out through letters that are written after the fact saying, you know, people started rushing the boats and mostly third class. And then the officers pulled out these guns and they shot about 12 people. Um, and, you know, in, in the movie, we get one guy pulling out a gun, shooting one guy and then shooting himself. Uh, sort of, you know, as chaos breaks out after the sort of very orderly first class. Well, the truth was those boats left very quickly. And by the time the third class got up, they realized that boat was at a 45 degree angle, with 39,000 tons of water entering in. They realized very quickly there was no way off this ship. So it really was every man for himself. And, and just to break from that thought, the every man for himself at about 210, Captain Smith went down to Jack Phillips and Harold Bride and said, listen, you, you men have done your duty. It's every man for himself. And then he left, but they did not leave their post. They stayed in that wireless room until the power flicked out and water was literally around their ankles. And of course, then Jack Phillips died very quickly. and and uh, Harold Bride survived, uh, actually under a boat in the North Atlantic, if you can believe that. And then he climbed on top of it, of course, with his feet freezing. But he let everybody know, you know, a, a ship's coming, Carpathia is coming. And this gave everybody immense hope. And part of that uh, every man for his himself notion is it was a scene that was actually de de depicted in the movie A Night to Remember and in the book. Um, was the uh, the crewman, the uh, Harold Bride said he was a, a stoker from the engine room uh, who tried to steal uh, Jack Phillips' life preserver. And then in Harold Bride's telling, he brained him and left him there unconscious as the water was uh, creeping up the deck. Yeah, um, that's right. And that was actually also in the New York Times account. Um, and we find this incredible, but think about it. You know, it's a little bit like uh, the early days of COVID-19 when there was just a little bit of vaccine and you had millions of people that wanted it. You have, you know, 1,500 people wanted off this ship with maybe one or two boats left. Uh, people were frantic. They were going to do anything they could. So this stoker, this guy who shovels coal, comes up, sees Jack Phillips hunched over, tries to take his jacket. Harold Bride sees him. And yeah, he, he basically said he didn't act unconscious or killed him and he didn't care which. Um, because he saw that as he was trying to kill Jack Phillips by taking his life preserver. So it, it really was a very dire, dire situation at that point on, on, on the Titanic. And any sense of order had vanished. Uh, there was no con long conversation. And speaking of that, we can talk about the band a little bit. You know, there's always the band played on. Well, there was a woman in 1965 who survived and said, that's ridiculous. She said, first of all, it was so cold, the strings were broke. Second of all, the ship was at such an angle they couldn't have stood there. And third of all, those 24 boilers 
that were all fired up. They were blowing off all that steam through the funnels. And this has been backed up by, you know, second officer Lightoller and others. You couldn't hear yourself think. You couldn't speak. They had to use sign language to get people into the boats. So we do have a lot of accounts of people saying, no, the band played on. And I think probably they did in some instance, but only a few people heard it because according to this woman, it was impossible for them to even be heard. Uh, among the people who were on the sidelines or part of the story that night, and this was another thing that, that really jumped out at me, especially as a Chicago connection, was that um, uh, one of the ships that attempted to come to Titanic's aid but was simply too far away and later used its powerful transmitter to uh, uh, relay message, uh, information about those who survived and those who didn't was the sister ship, the, the Olympic which was virtually identical. It was almost a year old at that point. And uh, one of the passengers on the Olympic that night was Daniel Burnham, who kind of figured out what was going on. Yeah, yeah, Daniel Burnham, who uh, had put on the 1893 World's Fair in Chicago, a century of progress. Everybody knows from Eric Larson's book, Devil in the White City. Um, he, was, he was on board, and he went to send a telegram to one of his partners, and uh, they said, I'm sorry, this is on Olympic. I'm sorry, we can't do that. And he said, well, why not? He said, because we're rushing toward Titanic and she's sinking from an iceberg. And so he was one of the few to know because they told all the passengers on Olympic, uh, Titanic's fine. You know, uh, they even posted a thing saying that Titanic was being towed to uh, Newfoundland and she was fine in Halifax. Um, but in fact, you know, Burnham found out before anybody else that, in fact, Titanic was not fine. And of course, uh, Olympic was about 500 miles away, so she could never get there. But because of her powerful set, she became a relay station for Titanic and the information going out to the world. Um, so, yeah, it's a very strange confluence of uh, the 1893 Fair of Chicago with this great tragedy of 1912. And the, the wireless signals, I mean, just to give uh, everyone an idea of, of what radio ranges are like, um, Titanic had a 5,000-watt uh, transmitter, which even today in AM radio is pretty good. But in 1912, on a cold, clear night where there's no electrical interference whatsoever because it's 1912, um, not only could it go across the ocean and reach Newfoundland and New York, it went as far inland as, uh, as, as Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. You had people in western Pennsylvania listening in as uh, this tragedy was unfolding. Was there any, did, in, in your research, did you find anything about it getting possibly, you know, people in Chicago possibly listening in, or how the, you know, the Tribune was able to follow along in the days after? Yeah, um, actually what happened was all the newspapers started to hire wireless men right away. And they would literally sit in the newsrooms and Chicago Tribune and others um, with two uh, headsets, really, listening through two different sets to try and pick up anything. And as you said, these signals went all the way into the interior. There was a high school class, I think it was in Pittsburgh, um, where they were, you know, one of their experiments was wireless, was they were, you know, trying to demonstrate wireless and all this. And they picked up these signals. The, the high school class picked it up. There was another two gentlemen who were uh, sort of hobbyists. Uh, if you were, it, probably a good comparison would be the people who do shortwave radio today. It's a very culty thing. Uh, they're, they're very into it. 
Uh, and that's what a lot of these people were with wireless. Um, it wasn't expensive to get a wireless set and they would you know, string their antennas up on roofs and everything else. Well, these two gentlemen uh, who, who were just these sort of hobbyists, they too picked up uh, Titanic sinking. And, you know, and again, they would run and tell people, oh, it's sinking. And people would say, that's ridiculous. It's unsinkable. And of course, the reason they got that unsinkable moniker was because of the watertight doors that yes, they would seal off the bulkheads, but the bulkheads only went up to E-deck. So it's a little bit like you're sitting in your living room watching television, but you left the window open in your bedroom, which, which is right next to your living room. That fills up with water and it comes over the ceiling and pours down on you. That's exactly what happened to Titanic. As you know, four compartments, she would have been fine. But because she turned from that iceberg, 500 billion ton iceberg, she was scraped open like a can opener and her fifth compartment flooded. Well, the physics are then that, you know, like a canoe with a big weight in the front, the bow got pulled 60 feet under the Atlantic, and that water started to climb up and over those bulkheads like water going upstairs. And, and again, with five compartments, she was doomed. And that's how the ship's architect, Andrews, knew right away she would found her. And in that famous scene in the movie, he says, uh, you know, he says, where Captain Smith says, that's impossible we're going to sink. And he says, oh, no, I assure you, she will founder, you know, within two hours. Well, he was a little off. It was about two hours and 40 minutes. We're going to come, we're coming up on the 110th anniversary of the sinking um, next year. And there doesn't seem to be any sign in the let up of the fascination uh, surrounding this story. And you mentioned the the three periods of time in which there is this, this story has been lifted back up uh, into the public consciousness. I mean, the first time would be 1912, when the ship sinks and there's a great deal right. of media fascination. There's inquiries. There's there's a great deal of news stories, sermons about the Titanic. They even made a movie. Um, I mean, the, the first eyewitness book came out in 1913. There was a very short movie that came out about the yes. sinking. Um, and then it kind of disappeared from public consciousness as, uh, as World War I takes over. Um, they make another movie in 1929 called Atlantic, which was basically about the Titanic, but not enough to bring back bad memories for the survivors. The most fascinating movie to me is the <laughs> the the movie that was made in the 40s by Nazi Germany as a uh, right. a propaganda vehicle uh, portraying the the British as uh, money hungry and careless. And uh, the, the, there was one lone German officer who knew there was a problem. But then it came back in the 50s. Um, I would argue it came back in the 80s, too, when they found the shipwreck. And, of course, uh, you know, Titanic in 1997 uh, became this cultural force. Every generation discovers this story. People are still talking about it. There are still debates about who did what and what their responsibilities were. It's the most documented shipwreck of all time, and yet there are so many more questions that we may never know the answer to. Um, now that you've written a book, now that you've explored this subject exhaustively, uh, do you feel that all of your questions have been answered, or does that fascination still exist? Um, you know, a lot of my questions where I think, you know, what I stumbled upon was the very fact that, you know, people could have been rescued who weren't. Um, and that uh, Captain Lord, who was eventually convicted, essentially, in the Senate investigation afterward for not coming to the aid of these people, uh, there were true failings. But, but 
you know, there, there is a mission to go down and get the wireless room as we speak. Um, they're trying to clear some legal hurdles and they want to bring it up before it disintegrates. And as I say at the end of the book, um, you know, when they get that set up, will there be one last message embedded in those transmitter coils? And it would be probably a basic question if there is, and it would be this, will you come help us? And that's really what Titanic asked. Titanic was asking of those around her, please come help us. And it's a very universal question. And some responded and a lot didn't. So I think this is uh, still the, the question of could everyone been saved still lingers. This has been the WBBM In-Depth Podcast. I'm Rob Hart, along with historian William Hazelgrove, author of 160 Minutes, The Race to Save RMS Titanic. A News Radio WBBM Podcast, powered by Odyssey. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? We make getting custom window treatments a minor project with major impact. Choose from premium blinds, shades, and shutters. We even have options for your patio, too. Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Our design experts can help you find the perfect window treatments on your schedule. We'll even send free samples directly to you. Plus, we can handle the measuring and installation for you. Unlimited window treatments installed for just one low cost. And with Blinds.com, you'll always get transparent pricing. No hidden fees. Our free shipping and 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step. And into your home, too. Shop Blinds.com right now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off for a limited time at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Oh, oh, oh. Protect your vehicle's engine with a full synthetic oil change and save with Mobile One at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Purchase five quarts of Mobile One full synthetic motor oil and receive a $10 O'Reilly gift card after rebate. See store for details. With your Mobile One purchase, you'll also receive two times points during Old Rewards Bonus Points Month at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts.